0: I do want to draw your attention to the small group um, meeting today at four. The small group meeting is an opportunity for us to, to share with you our vision for discipleship. And if you come, you can talk about whether you want to maybe possibly host it at your home or be a facilitator. And a facilitator will be someone who takes what the handout that I have for them And we'll work through it, work through scripture. But this is a great opportunity to find fellowship at this church. The more that we grow, the harder it is for us to have fellowship with one another in a smaller, intimate setting. And so that's what small groups are going to be. And my goal is that everyone in our congregation belong to a small group at some point. That is the goal. And and I'd like to see small groups, maybe one in Hereford, maybe one in Sierra Vista, maybe Wachuka City, and maybe on Post even. But just spread out through the community And you can invite your neighbors to your small group meeting, and that will be an opportunity for them to hear the gospel as well. So that's something I want to encourage you to come to, even if you don't want to host or facilitate. I'm going to walk through what a small group would look like, and you'll be able to see, um, is this something that you could benefit from? Because I know you will, but you may want to test the waters first. Okay, so join us at 4 o'clock to talk about small groups. So turn in your Bibles to Philippians Chapter 1, starting in verse 27. There's nothing quite like a well-practiced team working together to solve a problem. Maybe they want to win a game or achieve some goal. And the team works together, not as a group of individuals, but as one moving, living organism. Have you ever seen that? When I was in the military, there was um, something we called crew drills. And so if we were in a a fighting vehicle or if we were in some kind of tactical vehicle, each member of the crew had a responsibility. And we would test our skills at a thing called gunnery. And so we would go out there and we would have certain tasks. The driver had a task. His job was at at the right command to move the vehicle forward. And then the gunner's job was to engage the targets that he was told. And the truck commander's job was to tell him the priority of the targets. And so a fire command would sound something like this. Gunner, troops, truck, troops first. And then if you had a Bradley fighting vehicle, you may say HE, Sabo, or uh, 556, or 762, or tow missile, right? And you had all these commands. In fact, you practiced it so much that even in your sleep sometimes, you would be giving fire commands to your wife. And you'd be falling asleep, talking in your sleep. But what is beautiful is to watch a team of disgruntled individuals Come together and be able to to take it down just just like that. Or perhaps maybe a sports analogy would be more helpful to you. You ever see how a, a football team is all just everybody has their own agenda and they're going every which way. Or a basketball team is a bunch of individuals. But then after time, after practice, they have one goal, one focus, and they start to move together as a team. No longer are they distracted by the things, external concerns. Maybe... Maybe if they're playing, they're thinking about the laundry. Who's doing laundry tonight? Where are we going to go to dinner? And they get distracted instead of focusing on the goal. And so this is what Paul is warning about in this gospel, in this part of this, uh, of this passage, not the gospel, sorry. In this passage, he is saying how to be a gospel-centered church, how to have unity, how to pursue the same goal. And in fact, the biggest threat to the church is not external, but actually internal. Just like the biggest threat to your Christian walk is not someone outside of you, but your heart. And so we have to be aware of what could destroy the local church. In fact, there's someone in this congregation who could be a tool of Satan to destroy this congregation. It might even be you. So let's go ahead and consider what Paul has to say about this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, starts like this. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to and see you or am absent, I will hear about you and that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I am and now hear that I have. Chapter 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. Having the same love, unified in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of of others. Let's go ahead and pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank, thank you for your word speaking truth. Father, this is a difficult topic because it deals with everyday issues. Father, I pray that every member of this congregation, every person here in this congregation would have a heart open to hearing what you would have me say to, to them from your word. Lord, help me to speak only your truth Do not allow me to say anything that is not true. God, guide us. Be with us today. Help us to worship you in this sermon. Help this be a sermon that turns to joy and rejoicing in you. Father, we thank you for your mercy upon us, your grace. Be with the child care workers today as they um, are watching the kids and allowing us to really concentrate and focus on your word today. We thank you, and we thank you for the coming Easter service that's going to happen, I pray that you would begin to prepare hearts for that now, today. And all these things we ask in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. So last week, we saw how we have to live a life worthy of the gospel. And we talked about suffering. We talked about what is our focus on? Who are we chasing? Are we following Christ, or are we following some of the things of this world that are so is a vapor, is, a, is, a, is dust, and that will disappear? Or are we focusing on today how to follow Christ? And then we saw that in our passage that Paul suffered hardship and circumstances a couple weeks ago. And then this Paul now goes into this. Last week he said, for me to live as Christ and die is gain. And then he says today to the church, just one thing. So what I love about this book is how many catchy sayings Paul has. He says, just snappy sayings, doesn't he? He says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. If he was on Twitter, he would probably have a vast following because of how well he is able to say these words. And he says this today. He says, just one thing, live your life worthy of the gospel. Do you hear those words? Do you hear the weight of those words? If I was sitting in there in that congregation when I heard this letter for the first time, I'd probably be, oh, is that all, Paul? Is that it? Just, just live my life worthy of the gospel? That's easy. Yeah, nobody we got this. right. No, of course not. It's, it's difficult. And so he goes on to explain what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. In fact, this is one of the first commands that Paul gives in this, um, in this letter. And I would even say that this is the whole thrust of the book of Philippians. The whole point of the book of Philippians, this letter to the people in Philippi, is to command them to live a life worthy of the gospel. And then he goes on and shows us what it looks like. But he starts with who the Philippians are. He starts with their identity. Look what it says in verse 27. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven... So when he says, as citizens of heaven, he's basically telling them, this is what a Christian church looks like. This is what a citizen of heaven looks like. And he says, you have to have a unified stand. You need to be together in this. He says, then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in, the, in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the gospel, One of the greatest hindrances to a church making an impact on their community around them is a lack of unity. A lack of unity in the church will have an unbelieving world look at believers and say, they don't have anything that I want. They are nothing but a bunch of backbiters. And so we see that we have to take a unified stand. When he talks about them being citizens, he says... Citizens of heaven. Now, remember, we talked about Philippi, the setting of Philippi. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. They had, they had defeated an enemy, and they had said, and the, uh, the general of that battle said, this will now be a Roman colony. You are now citizens of Rome. If you are a Roman soldier who fought in this battle, you as a veteran will have special privileges, and so you don't have to pay the taxes that everybody else has to pay. There's certain requirements that we're not going to require of you, and you get all the benefits of being a citizen. Imagine if you were a citizen of the United States and you lived in a, in, a, in a country or a state that became a colony of the United States and they said, you don't have to pay taxes, you don't have to pay all these extra things, and we, have, we protect you. That's a big, valuable thing. So these people in Philippi are reminded about citizenship and they're proud of their citizenship. This is something that they have fought for. There are many veterans in this room who have fought for their country, and we are proud of the country that we have. But here's the thing. The people in Philippi would be considered traitors to their country by worshiping another god. Instead of worshiping the gods of Rome, if they were to turn and worship another god, they would be considered a traitor because the Romans, in their minds, you have to appease the gods. You have to make the gods like you in order to make you prosper. And if you don't do that, then you are going to put your country at risk, and therefore you're a traitor. And so Paul is pointing them to a greater allegiance. He says, you are citizens of heaven. And this is important for us as American citizens to consider as well. Where is our citizenship? What takes priority in our lives? And because of that citizenship, we recognize that we are a community. We are a community of believers. We are a community that needs to work together for a common task. In John thirteen thirty five, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you see the nature of what this unified stand looks like? It's, it looks like this in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. So what does it mean to stand firm? Well, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for guard duty. When he says stand firm, he is saying, be like the guard on the outpost who stands in front of his base, in front of his camp, and the, the, the whole horde of the, 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 barbar, uh, the barbarians are coming toward you, and you are standing there protecting your sleeping brothers and sisters. Well, mainly brothers if you're in the Roman army. But you're standing firm. In fact, you're standing firm from this onslaught, and then the rest of the unit will then wake up and hear the alarm, and they'll run forward and lock arms with you, And you will then stand firm in battle formation against an onslaught. And so when Paul is saying stand firm, he is saying there is something we must do together. We must be on guard together for those who would destroy the unity of the gospel. You must stand with your fellow citizens of heaven against all opponents. Not only that, you must contend Together for the gospel. And now we have another metaphor. Paul is just throwing metaphor after metaphor, and he's a grand illustrator. When he says contending together, he's using a sports metaphor. We are to be a team striving together for one goal of living our lives worthy of the gospel. If we are to be a gospel centered church, we need to lock arms together and engage in this life. This is not a lone survivor situation here where we go off on our own. In fact, we know that that's Satan's goal is to isolate you. He wants to pull you away from the body of Christ and then therefore destroy you, devour you, is what the text says. We know in Peter it says Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whoever he may devour. And if you watch National Geographic, you may notice that like the gazelles, the lion will roar the dad lion, the man, the male, he just makes a lot of noise. And then the, the gazelles start hopping away and, and they're all running in a herd. But if there's one that escapes out, the mom lions, the female lions, will grab that one that has, has departed from the herd. And so that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to scare us into dissipating, to breaking into factions. And if we can break into factions, then he can start picking us off one by one, little by little. In fact, that's what zebras have their stripes. It's because it confuses the eyeballs of whatever predator is watching them. And as they're milling around in a group, they can't identify one single target. And so it gets confusing. So that's what Satan tries to do with the church. And Paul is very aware of this. He has dealt with churches with division before. He has dealt with churches who are, are not unified around one common theme. So what are we unified around? He says, not only do we need to contend for the gospel, not only do we need to stand firm in our faith, but it's because of this, so as not to be frightened in any way by our opponents. And this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. Do you see what's happening here? There are opponents. Paul is aware of some opponents. And these opponents, they damage the gospel in some way. He says, this is a sign. This is a symbol. This is an example. This is a a warning of your destruction or of destruction for them, but of your salvation. This is from God. So this shows us that there are internal and external opponents. So we have the external opponents. They want to change the gospel If you have your Bibles, go ahead and look at chapter 3. And in verse 2, he he warns them about who these external people are, these external opponents. He says, watch out for the dogs, these, these wild, ravaging animals. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. You see that there are some people that came to the church in Philippi and said, you all must be circumcised. You must all follow the Old Testament laws. That's the only way to salvation. Jesus is nice, but this is the way to salvation. And Paul is saying, no, that's damaging the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. He is the law. He is grace incarnate. And so that's what he is pointing to. And then we have the most dangerous, the ones on the inside. And those are those within our own church family. And sometimes even with the sinfulness in our own hearts that would destroy the gospel. You may say, no way. How could it possibly be that Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, would want to destroy the gospel? Who would want to destroy the gospel? Do you want to destroy the gospel? Do you want to destroy the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you want to damage him in any way? Well, let's go ahead and look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, we hear about two women. In verse 2, he says, I urge Eudia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. You hear that? There's two ladies that are having a conflict. He doesn't say what their conflict is. And then he asked his true partner to help those women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. He's, he called them out in a letter. Imagine how bad you have to be for Paul to write a letter and call you out by name. I mean, he heard what's going on in this church. There are two ladies having conflict with one another. So he doesn't say what they are. He doesn't bring their dirty laundry out into the middle of the church and say they're they're arguing over carpet color or they're arguing over the, the decorations or they're arguing over this or they're arguing over that. He doesn't say that. But we know where arguments come from. James 4.1 says that conflicts come from the passions that war within us. It's our own desires. So these two ladies have desires that are contrary to one another. And these ladies are ladies who have... Um, live their lives for the gospel they have contended for the faith as Paul has has told them to do but instead of pursuing peace we pursue what our heart wants we follow our heart we follow our desires we follow what we want rather than pursuing peace how many of us are willing to pursue peace over our own preferences our own wants our own desires and so by their conflict These women are damaging the witness of the church and consequently the gospel. They're damaging the witness of the church from the inside. In fact, the same unity language that Paul is talking about in chapter four, he's using here in our passage in chapter one and two. These women are becoming tools of the devil for the destruction of a local church. They are becoming Satan's, co-workers in order to destroy it they um they're giving the gospel a black eye in fact the most dangerous sign of destruction is that of a conflict within a church you know this life has plenty of conflict and trials but woe to us if it comes from within woe to us if we are the cause of division in a local church Woe to us in fact, I think it would be better for us to be cut off than to be one that that perpetrates this conflict. It's these kind of issues that at some point you're going to have to stand before a holy and perfect God and imagine if you are separating over third order issues issues that are not are, are, are only tertiary issues with the gospel things that maybe don't have a influence on the gospel like do we sing modern songs or do we sing old songs? Do we, sing, do we wear a suit and tie to church or do we wear a t-shirt and blue jeans? Right? If we are separating over these things, we're giving the gospel a black eye. If we are so concerned about where I sit in my sanctuary and this is my seat or this is my pew and a visitor comes in and sits down and you walk up to him and say, no, that's my seat. How garbage is that? It's disgusting, but that happens in churches everywhere. If we are so concerned about the furniture, all we're doing is rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. We're going down, we're going to sink, and we're going to die. So why do we worry about these things? It's because our own desires for our own comfort supersede the gospel. We say, you know, it's important that we love Jesus, and we want other people to love Jesus, but just as long as they don't have to give up my chair for that. I would hate to have to sit down somewhere else one of those uncomfortable dining chairs rather than these big plush blue chairs, right? And we have this, this, this desire for ourselves and we forget who we are serving. Who is your master? How dare we break relationships up over these petty side issues? Because it's not only like external people coming to visit, but it's within our own congregation. There are people in our own congregation who are willing to break up a relationship over things that don't matter that are small, that are slight, and they're willing to destroy the church because of it. Would you want to be a church that's always fighting on the inside? How would you devastate the gospel by having your silly preferences over that of someone else? It makes me sick, I'm going to be honest with you. The more I think about it, I just want to vomit. I just want to throw up when I think about Brothers and sisters in Christ fighting over a temporary small issue. And then they're going to spend eternity in heaven celebrating when maybe their actions are causing people to turn away from the gospel because these two couldn't get along on this planet, on this earth. When we are disunited in the church, we are a tool of Satan. In fact, we're like the serpent in the garden. We whisper to a watching world. They don't even know their own gospel. Their own gospel isn't enough to make them want to unify around the same thing. It's not that important. That's what we do when we are not unified in the faith. They may, they, may, um, they may hear the voice of Satan in their head. Well, the gospel must not be that important. Obviously, they don't care that much about being a member of a church, belonging to a church family. Family must not be that important to them. Can we all commit to getting to the bottom of conflict in our lives as well as in the church. If you have a problem with someone, go and talk to them. You need to draw near to someone. If someone asks you what's wrong, do not pretend everything is honky dory. I don't know what that word means, but it means don't pretend that everything is okay. Don't pretend that it's all perfect. For the love, of jesus christ be honest goodness gracious how much problems could be solved if you just were honest that someone hurt your feelings if someone did something you didn't like and they say did i hurt your feelings you turn to them and say yes that hurt my feelings and then you can work it out but instead what do you do you isolate You pull away. Instead of sitting over here with your friends, you move to the other side of the sanctuary and sit with your other friends over there. And then you start gossiping with your friends and say, well, that person's not so kind, or you just be careful about them. They're going to hurt you. And eventually, you're starting to fracture the church. And the next thing you know, the church is fractured. And everyone outside watching is like, I knew that wouldn't last. Guess the honeymoon period is over. Ha, ha, ha. Another church going down. And they laugh at us because we're not unified. Being unified means we move toward each other. We don't pull away from each other. We do not isolate. We do not give the silent treatment. And this is important for your marriages too. But you move toward each other. And you don't isolate. You facilitate unity. Hebrews 10:25 says Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. How can you gather together and encourage each other if you don't even come to church because you're so mad at somebody else? How can you encourage that? In fact, if you commit to being a part of something and then you abandon it completely, you're not letting down the person that you have that conflict you're letting down the whole group that you promised to committed to be with. If the deaconesses get into an argument and they fight and there's two ladies in there that are not agreeing well together and one bounces out and abandons them, they're not hurting the person they don't like. They're hurting the whole group. If us as elders get into an argument and we say, well, I'm just not gonna talk to anybody in the elder board anymore. Who are we hurting? We're hurting ourselves, but we're also hurting the whole body. We're not hurting just the other person who we want to hurt. So I want you to think about that as you consider what it means to be a member of a church. And before we confront someone, obviously, you check your own heart. You check your own actions. You see, did I do something to hurt that other person? They hurt my feelings, but maybe I said something or did something. I don't recognize it, but I want to go and make it right. And so if you do think about it, You want to make it better. The principle is he who knows goes. If you know you have something against someone, you go and talk to them. If they did something to you and you know they did something to you, you go talk to them. He who knows goes. That's the rule. Okay? So if you know someone has something against you, you talk to them. Or if you did something and you, uh, or they did something to you, you go tell them. It's both. You don't wait for them to come and talk to you. Like, I'm just going to be angry over here until they realize they hurt my feelings. That's a bunch of silliness. That's, that's, that's immature. And so before I correct my wife on something, I need to examine my own heart and see where I am to blame. If my wife is super pulled away from me, I need to say, what did I do to cause this? And maybe I didn't. Maybe she's just having a bad day. That's possible. You know, She gets those every once in a while. But more often than not, it's something I said. And so I can make it right. I can go to her and say, hey, honey, I'm so sorry that I talked to you in that way and I can get that right. But we start by looking at Christ on the cross. This Christ who made peace between us and God should then motivate us to draw to others. If Christ was willing to make peace with us while we were yet sinners, why can't we do that with people who hurt us in a petty way? We look at Christ. That should be our motivation. In fact, the inability to address conflict shows the lack of maturity in your personal walk with Jesus Christ. If you say, oh, I'm great with God, but everybody else has a problem with me. No, you're not great with God. I'm going to tell you right now. That's not how this works. The more your relationship with God is close, the more it reflects in your everyday, everybody else life. This is a very practical part of Christianity. So the experience of the stand that we must take to be unified means that we're going to suffer. We as a church will suffer against those who do not have belief in verse 29 it says for it has been granted to you man it's a gift on your on christ's behalf not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him did you think have you ever thought about suffering as a gift before it makes us stronger it makes you rely on christ more the more the the weakness i have glorifies god greater in verse 30 since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now have heard I have. By standing unified together, we will experience suffering. It's not popular to expel someone from your congregation, from your your church family. It's not popular to practice church discipline, but it's a necessary part of the church. If there is someone who is sinning visibly in your congregation and you do not address that, you are going to... Siri did not even understand that. Even technology doesn't understand church discipline. But that's what we have to recognize. By standing together, we will experience suffering. And what what I love about this is that we are experiencing the same struggle as Paul. Paul, who was shipwrecked, who was stoned, who was thrown in prison. We get a share in that. So when when someone uh, reviles you, who talks bad about you, You can say, well, I stand with Paul. Paul, who served Christ faithfully, even up to death. And Paul knows that it's not an easy task task to stand together because you're going to experience what Paul experienced. Just make sure that you're suffering for the cause of Christ because you're being Christ-like, not because you're being a jerk. Okay, just make sure we get that out there. So how can we take this unified stand, right? Paul has said, you got to do this. This is the one thing I'm commanding you. Take a unified stand as a Christian church. This is what you must do. Why are you not doing it? This is what you have to do. And then he gives us how to. And it starts in chapter 2. He says, to take a unified stand, you must have a unified mind. Having a unified mind is what Paul longs for in his people. Those who walk worthy of the gospel... Should have a unified mind. In fact, he adds a personal command to it. He says, "Make my joy complete. Make my joy complete." What would make Paul happy? Well, that his people that he has that church plant that he had started would have the same mind, a unified mind. So let's go ahead and look at the, what a, a unified mind is that characterizes the Christian. Starting in verse 1, he says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and then he goes on and he says this thing. Paul is describing the four experiences of being in Christ and being in a gospel-centered church. In fact, Paul is kind of building the case for a conclusion. It would be like me asking one of my boys, I want, them to do, I want them to take their laundry to their room. And so I do this. I say this. Did I buy your clothes? Their response, yes, dad. I ask them, did, did I wash your clothes? And usually it's my wife that's saying this, right? And they say, yes, dad. And I say, did I dry them? Yes, dad. Then is it too much for me to ask for you to fold them? That's what Paul is doing here. He's building a case. He's like, if there is any, if there is any encouragement, if there's any consolation, if there's any fellowship, if there's any affection, which really is, he's not saying if there is like as a question. He's saying there is, and therefore we need to do this. We need to do what it says in verse two. We see the essence of the unity. It says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. Unity of mind. He said, if the above is your experience, if you have had consolation and love and fellowship and all these things, if you've had all that, then you can have a unified mind and purpose. Think the same way. So what does it mean to think the same way? Well, I think Romans 8.5 gives us a hint. It says, for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. So you must be focused on Jesus. In fact, that's what Colossians says. Seek the things above. We should place our mind on Christ. And that's what Paul does daily. We see that that's Paul's agenda. So by setting our mind on Jesus, or on setting our mind on these heavenly realities, on thinking about this rightly, we think about life and what it looks like properly, then we will have unity. Let's go ahead and look at how Paul describes what unity looks like. 2b says it this way, the second part of verse 2. By having the same outlook, first of all. And he says this. He says, by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. So the first expression of this unity is having the same outlook. You are knit together with the love of Jesus Christ, you are unified in your spirits, your souls are unified, and you have the same purpose as that of Paul. And so these three things, the, the having the same outlook, having the, um, the, the way that unity is expressed is through humility, and then the third thing that we see is that it's expressed when you look out for others. So let's go ahead and look at the second way of expressing unity. It's through humility. Look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Do you see what Paul did there in, that, in that, the phrase there? He gave us a positive, a don't do this, but a do do this. I just said do do from the pulpit. But a do do this. All right? So do this. Let me show you how to do this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So the first thing is we we have this, don't do anything with a selfish reason or having conceit or jealousy, but instead do the positive thing. Consider others as more important than yourselves. If you would have humility in your Christian life, don't do stuff out of ambition. Instead, think of other people. In fact, humility was a negative trait in the Greek. The Greeks would think of this as being a slave. Humility means being humble. They would not like that. They like pride. They like being on top. They don't like to think of others unless it's advantageous for them. And so Paul is actually flipping the whole world on its head by saying humility is what you should be doing. You should have humility. And then the third way this unity is expressed is when you look out for others. It says everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So your focus, your purpose should be on the good of others in the church. No longer should you walk in the sanctuary and think, where can I go to make myself happiest? But where can I go that can make other people comfortable? What can I do to help people actually follow Christ and encourage them in the way? Don't come to church thinking, how can I be encouraged today? And that's an important part. But you come to church with, how can I encourage someone else? How can I love someone else? How can I give joy to someone else? Not joy, the person, but joy, the emotion, right? How can I give joy to someone else? You focus on the good of another. So a team working together to accomplish a common goal is a real beautiful thing. You know, watching those groups of individuals focus their mind on one common task in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, we have to be a gospel-centered church. Which means that we need to stand unified. And to stand unified, we need to be about the same thing. We need to have the same business. If our goal in life is not about the gospel, if we don't come to church to build each other up in the gospel, then what are you coming here for? What is your purpose? This church, we want to be a biblical church. And so this church is about the gospel. We are about the gospel in this church. We are for the gospel in this church, and we are by the gospel. If that's not what you want, if that's not what you are about, I want you to ask yourself, why am I here? If I don't want a church centered around the gospel, but I want one centered around me, you're worshiping the wrong God. We want to worship. So in order to be unified, we must be clear about the gospel. So I want to help you articulate the gospel. So I'm going to give you a one-sentence gospel, and then I'm going to give you a a little more of an in-depth paragraph of what the gospel is. In the one sentence, The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again. He is now eternally triumphant over his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. That's all one sentence. There's a lot of commas in there. Okay? The longer one is, the good news is that the one and only God, who is holy, made us in His image to know Him, but we sinned and cut ourselves off from Him. In His great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, "...thus fulfilling the law himself, and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice, and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted. He ascended and presented his completed work to his Heavenly Father. He now sends his Spirit to call us through his message, to repent of our sins, and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness." If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. Those are two ways for you to understand the gospel. As we approach Easter, today is Palm Sunday. This is the day where they're singing Hosanna in the highest, and they're throwing the palm leaves on the ground. Jesus is riding a donkey into Jerusalem. He's approaching his death. He's on a death march. He is walking to where he's going to die. Or he's riding on the donkey, on the foal of the donkey. And so as we think about Jesus, we think about the sacrifice, we think about all of this, I have three groups in mind that I want to ask this question. Members of this church, do you put your faith and trust in this gospel? Then you need to live it out. If that's the case, you need to live it out. You need to put aside any petty bickering and you need to focus on the task of encouraging each other in Christ. You need to get out of your comfort zone and get to know each other. Do the hard work necessary to end conflicts in your life. And if you need help, come talk to me. My door is open for you. Non-members, if you're not a member, but you've been attending for a long time, I want to ask you this question. Are you ready to partner with us in meaningful membership on this gospel mission. Are you ready to join us and be a part of this church family? We have a new member class next month, and I would love for you to come and attend it. And please RSVP so I know how many to expect. And if you're a non-Christian in here, what is stopping you from believing in Jesus and trusting in Him alone? What is stopping you? Here's the thing, you just heard the gospel message. If you're not a believer, now is the time that you have to either accept this message or you reject this message. So by accepting, that means you're going to come and talk with one of the elders or myself. And if by rejecting it, then what are you going to do with that rejection? Either way, this gospel truth requires a response. Let's go ahead and close in prayer as a unified, gospel-centered church family. Father, our desire is to follow what Paul says, to be unified around the gospel. We long to be a church that is so focused on you that when people look at us, they see what matters. They're not distracted by the nice things that we have and the, the talents that we have, but they're actually focused in on the one thing, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we love Jesus and we want others to know him. Father, help us to be about that business. Help us to be a church that has a single passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would stir in every heart if there's any disunity in this congregation, that they would deal with it immediately. They would not let it fester and become an open sore that requires amputation. Father, if there is anyone in this congregation who's convicted by this message, I pray that you would encourage them to do the right thing, that you would continue to press upon their heart the right way. Father, we love you and we thank you for your great mercy on us. Father, once again, I want to lift up Easter, this coming Easter uh, service. It's going to be special where we really get to celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray for just continued care for us as we prepare for it. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.